This episode is brought to you by GSK. Each year, there are thousands of deaths from vaccine-preventable diseases in the U.S. At GSK, we develop and manufacture vaccines to help protect people against diseases like flu, meningitis, and shingles. And by exploring innovative technologies, we're working to develop new vaccines against diseases previously beyond our reach. Because the more diseases we prevent, the more lives we can save. Four letters of the alphabet, T-B-T-F. Acronymically, it's Washington and Wall Street shorthand for Too Big to Fail. And it's the concept that justified taxpayers having to bail out banks in trouble in the financial crisis because the thinking goes that if one of these really big banks goes down, it could take everything else in the economic system with it. Solution, how about breaking up the big banks? Drastic, right? But would that actually solve the problem? Would we be safe from the threat of TBTF if we broke up the big banks? Well, that sounds like the makings of a great debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Break up the big banks. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City, and we are in partnership with the Richmond Paul Richmond Center for Business, Law, and Public Policy, a joint venture of Columbia Business School and Columbia Law School. As always, we have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two on the motion, break up the big banks. And as always, we go in three rounds, and then the live audience here votes to pick the winner, and only one side wins. And now let's meet the team arguing for the motion. First, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Richard Fisher. And Richard, you are the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, a bank that Texas Monthly profiled in, and described, in which it described Dallas Fed's, quote, long tradition of being a pain in the, and a word beginning with A, and how you are perhaps the most visible in a long line of dissidents from the bank, uh, often in disagreement with Fed policy. So our question to you is, in the ranking of Fed uh, policy makers, how much of a pain in the neck are you? Well, first, thanks for getting it anatomically correct. <laughs> um, of course, I'm a member of a team. We're just trying to get it right. We're trying to conduct monetary policy and regulatory policy in order to promote the greatest economic employment growth without creating inflation. And this is an issue that's dear to our heart. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Fisher. And Richard, your partner is? Uh, my partner, Simon Johnson, not only the former chief economist for the International Monetary Fund, is also a brilliant professor at MIT of entrepreneurialism and has a great British accent. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it from Simon Johnson. And, and Simon, as former chief economist at the IMF, you spent a lot of your career uh, working on crisis prevention and growth issues in emerging markets, after which you said that while each crisis is different, they all look depressingly similar, including the crisis in the U.S. So what is the common denominator? Oligarchs, rich, powerful people who get out of control and they want you to bail them out again. Okay, okay. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Simon Johnson. Our motion is break up the big banks, and we have two debaters here to argue against this motion. First, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Doug Elliott. Um, 
Doug, you are a fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. You were in investment banking for 20 years, most of it at J.P. Morgan. At one point, you left banking and started up a nonprofit, which was called the Center on Federal Financial Institutions. After that, you went back to banking, back to J.P. Morgan, in 2006, just in time for the financial crisis, which says, what about timing? <laughs> it says I was broke. I, uh, I, was a, I was a volunteer think tanker. I needed to go back to Wall Street so I could support my think tank habit. Ladies and gentlemen, Doug Elliott. And, Doug, your partner is? Uh, the brilliant Paul Saltzman. He uh, runs the Clearinghouse Association, which analyzes these issues. And he has a very nice Brooklyn accent. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Saltzman. And, Paul, as Doug mentioned, you're president of the Clearinghouse Association, where uh, a while back you ran a sort of war game to test uh, federal legislation that uh, was put in place to manage banks called Dodd-Frank. We'll be hearing a lot about it. And it's, it simulated a bank meltdown. Uh, and you had people playing bankers and congressmen and journalists, et cetera, FDIC folks. So I really want to know, was your version of Congress more functional than the one that we have now? <laughs> Well, no, our version of Congress functioned as well as the current Congress. So uh, <laughs> I think it was very realistic, and uh, we had a number of folks who were in that field playing that, and they were as uh, fractious as today's current Congress. So was it a disaster? Uh, yes. Yep, great. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Saltzman. So our motion is this. Break up the big banks. On to round one, opening statements from each of our debaters in turn. Speaking first for the motion, break up the big banks, Richard Fisher. He is the president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Fisher. Thank you. Thank you very much. 0.2% of all the banks in the United States of America control 70% of the banking assets of the country. One of them, J.P. Morgan, has assets that exceed the total assets of 5,400 community banks in this country. Our definition of a bank, too big to fail, is a bank whose bondholders and shareholders and managers and big customers believe themselves exempt from the rules and the consequences that apply to all others. If they screw up, they'll be bailed out by you. It happened in 2008-2010. You know that. And then a law called Dodd-Frank was passed by Congress to prevent it from ever happening again. And yet today these banks are bigger and the power more concentrated than ever. The mechanics to corral them are more politicized than ever. And even worse, Dodd-Frank shackled smaller banks with over 13,000 pages of rules and regulations. This places the smaller banks that wish to compete with the big banks at a tremendous competitive disadvantage. They don't have the resources to hire lawyers and handsome, well-heeled, Brooklyn-accented lobbyists like Paul Seilsman, to work the regulators. Under the law, the big banks are now designated as systematically important financial institutions. The acronym for that is SIFIs. And actually, when you think about it, SIFI sounds like a communicable disease, <laughs> something that's transmitted by risky behavior. And indeed, <laughs> thank you. Indeed, it was the TBTFs, or the SIFIs, who were, if not the cause of, they were the spreaders of the economic virus that nearly destroyed our economy. 
the SIFIs, the too big to fails, are a dagger pointed directly at the heart of the American economy. Now, Mr. Salzman and others will be, are very fond of pointing out what they consider to be myths. One is that there is greater banking concentration in Canada than in the United States, greater concentration in France than in the United States. That's great if you like Gordon Lightfoot or if you're French. <laughs> or they will point out that there are other industries that have a greater concentration. For example, computers or telecoms. That's true. But these are companies that are not shielded from failure like banks are. The big banks, in summary, have taken what I call the immoral high ground. Government policy has led them there, and it has enshrined them. We need to correct this perversion of American capitalism. So I ask you to vote yes to the proposition before this House. Let us break up the big banks that are considered too big to fail. Thank you. Thank you, Richard Fisher. Our motion is break up the big banks. And here to speak against this motion, I'd like to introduce Paul Saltzman. He is president of the Clearinghouse Association, a trade group that represents 18 of the world's largest banks. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Saltzman. Thank you, John. Seven years after the subprime mortgage crisis, one thing is clear. Many people made serious mistakes. Public officials, regulators, and yes, Simon and Richard, large banks. Mistakes that we now know with the benefit of hindsight helped bring about the crisis. But in the three years since the passage of the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act, there has been an intense focus on strengthening our banking system. There are new rules and supervisory practices that are changing both the culture and the structure of large banks in permanent and transformational ways to ensure that a crisis like the one we experienced never happens again. But my opponents ignore or understate these reforms. Instead, they propose a radical, untested, and practically unworkable experiment that would upend the progress that we've made and create a whole host of new systemic crises. Smaller banks are inherently safer. That is their underlying assumption. And they are selling you this solution as a risk-free proposition without any cost to society. Yes, we can have all the benefits of large banks, but we don't need the large banks. I'm afraid, Simon and Richard, you just can't have it both ways. Their solution is naive and nostalgic. Look, the strength of our banking system is its diversity. We need banks of all sizes, shapes, and functions. And yes, within that mosaic, some banks are large. But some of these banks are large for a simple reason. They mirror the size and the scope of the economy that they serve. They are scaled to serve the customers and the companies that voluntarily use their services. Large banks provide a unique set of services, global distribution channels, innovative technologies, that only they can produce because of the economies of size, scope, and scale at cheaper prices for American consumers. Some of these benefits are visible, like mobile payment technologies and reward points. Some are very much behind the scenes, like fraud protection and massive investment for our global infrastructure, clearance, settlement, and payment systems. And large banks spend tens of billions of dollars protecting this critical market infrastructure from dangerous cyber attacks that small banks could not afford to pay. The underlying premise of my opponent's theory is that smaller banks are somehow safer and less complex. That is a faulty assumption 
that is simply belied by the facts of history. Banking crises are caused by one thing. When too many people buy an overinflated asset, you have what's called a common shock. A common shock associated with too many people buying the same overvalued asset. And when that asset bubble bursts, you have a systemic crisis. My point is, smaller institutions can be a source of systemic risk. Breaking up the banks will not prevent a future crisis, and also they would eliminate the stabilizing impact that large and well-diversified banks have during times of inevitable crises. And there has been tremendous progress in the pace and substance of regulatory reforms to mitigate the risks to our banking system. There isn't a single aspect of a bank's business that hasn't undergone reform or been untouched by regulatory reform. To suggest that these changes are illusory is just simply wrong. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Stay with us. And here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, break up the big banks. You have heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third. Arguing for the motion, break up the big banks, Simon Johnson. He is, a Ronald, he is the Ronald A. Kurtz Professor of Entrepreneurship at MIT Sloan School of Management and former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. Ladies and gentlemen, Simon Johnson. Now, now Richard Fisher has laid out for you the case, the economic case, the technical case for breaking up the big banks. My job today is to tell you the things that Richard Fisher can't tell you because he's too nice a guy and too much of a diplomat. And I want to come at these precisely by responding to what Paul Saltzman has just said on on three main dimensions. I want to talk about the magic, supposed magic of banking. I want to talk about J.P. Morgan Chase. And I want to talk about Dodd-Frank, the the legislation, the the, the miracle that Mr. Saltzman says has fixed all, all, all our problems. On the first point, on the magic of big banks, have you felt it? Have you seen around you, as the banks became bigger, the great improvement in customer service, the reduction in fees, the better access to credit for all Americans? No, no, no you, you, you have not. You have not. And, and the really... The, the, the really interesting point is, is the history. When did the banks in the United States become so big? It's mostly in the last 15 years. Mid-1990s, the largest six banks in the United States had total assets around 15%, 1-5% of U.S. GDP. They're now over 60% of GDP combined. They're bigger now than they were before the crisis. This is a recent development. All, everyone in this room, everyone listening, should have felt the magic. If, if there were any magic for you, there isn't. Let me, let me talk about J.P. Morgan Chase. What is the balance sheet measured properly? If you include all the derivative exposure using international accounting standards, it's a $4 trillion bank. It's about a quarter the size of the U.S. economy. I'm comparing the balance sheet with our annual GDP. That's a big bank. If J.P. Morgan were on the verge of failure today, $4 trillion is going down. It's a hypothetical. Please don't rush to tweet that. It's a hypothetical. J.P. Morgan is about to fail. Who here thinks that the President, Secretary of the Treasury, 
chairman of the Federal Reserve, would let them go. Does anyone think J.P. Morgan could fail, just like every other business outside of big banks could fail in America? Could J.P. Morgan fail? Anyone want to raise their hand? Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs was a $1.1 trillion bank when it failed. I'm sorry, uh, was um, rescued by with liquidity loans. I, I always get those two things mixed up. Uh, in September 2008, $1.1 trillion bank. That was up from $250 billion in the mid-1990s, when it was one of the best banks in the world, when it provided really good service to individuals and corporate customers. Anyone think Goldman Sachs could fail? No, I see no hands. One hand. There's a short seller in every New York audience. (laughs) Dodd-Frank, Mr. Saltzman says, Dodd-Frank has solved this problem. Now, I'm a supporter of Dodd-Frank. I think this is important legislation. We had to get some of these reforms done. I worked to help FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, with their implementation of some of the plans for how you manage the collapse of these banks. You know, maybe, maybe it'll work. Maybe the Federal Reserve will insist on preparing these banks properly so when the day comes, the damage is more to the management who are responsible and to the creditors who should be on the hook and to their shareholders who took the risk rather than on the rest of us, rather than on the economy, rather than on everyone who lost a job. Maybe we can avert that danger. Maybe Dodd-Frank will work and all these pieces will come together. I would not bet on that. I do not advise you to bet on it. I advise you... Not to take risk out of the world. You can't do that. We have no magic bullets. But as a matter of responsible action, and as a matter of reducing the risks that we will face, I urge you today, support the motion put forward by Richard Fisher and me. Break up the big banks. Thank you very much. Thank you, Simon Johnson. And that's our motion, break up the big banks. And here is our final debater speaking against the motion, Douglas Elliott. Doug Elliott is a fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution and a former investment banker. Ladies and gentlemen, Doug Elliott. Thank you. I strongly believe it would be a big mistake to forcibly break up the largest American banks. I oppose breaking them up for three main reasons. First, We need some very large, complex banks in America to cost-effectively help our businesses and families deal with a large, complex world. Without them, loans and other services will be more expensive and harder to get. Second, breaking up the big banks is unlikely to make us safer, despite the assertions of Richard and Simon. Third, The process of breaking the banks up would almost certainly cut bank lending for a number of years at a time when our economy needs more lending, not less. And this isn't just my opinion. The Business Roundtable did a survey of CEOs of major U.S. companies, and they very strongly supported the need for banks of this nature. Now, Richard has his Federal Reserve Bank in Dallas, which does some nice research for him. But I'm sorry, Richard. I happen to be more impressed by research papers from two other Federal Reserve banks in St. Louis and in Philadelphia that have shown quite considerable benefits of this kind of size and scope. Now, let me go to my point on no increase in safety, because I don't actually believe that what they're describing would make us safer, even though perhaps in that Churchillian approach, it sounds agreeable to do this, to break up the big banks. We all seem to hate bankers. 
but it's not actually the right way to go. Think about why it, what would be different. Let's say 10 years ago, if we had broken up the big banks into 20 pieces each, I don't think much would have been different in the crisis that we had because these smaller banks that they were broken up into would all have gone the same way. That is, they all would have overinvested in mortgages, both residential and commercial. Now, why do I say that? One, because at the time, almost everybody thought this was smart business. Secondly, you can look at what small and medium-sized banks did. The ones who actually existed that are supposedly safer, they took on tremendous risk and got hurt quite badly. They were just smaller, so they didn't each one of them make the headlines. Richard and Simon imply that smaller banks will take less risk. I don't see it. I don't see it from the incentive structure, and I don't see it from how they actually operated. But let me move on to the conclusion here. Keep in mind, Richard and Simon are selling you a theory. We have no actual experience of breaking up the big banks in this way in advanced economies. They cannot promise success, and I personally believe it will do considerable harm. Economy will be less efficient, credit more expensive, will be less competitive globally, and I don't see an increase in overall safety. Thank you. Doug Elliott, thank you very much. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is break up the big banks. Now on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address each other directly and answer questions from you in the audience and from me. We have two teams of two arguing for and against the motion, break up the big banks. Arguing for breaking up the big banks, Richard Fisher and uh, Simon Johnson, who argue that um, we're, we're in uncharted territory in terms of the size of the small number of banks that control the assets of an enormous, uh, of enormous amounts of money that they didn't have 15 years ago, that the government protections, that they are, the fact that they are shielded from failure is a moral hazard that needs to be remedied. The team arguing against the motion, Doug Elliott and Paul Saltzman, argue that the bigness of the banks is not the key issue here, that in the financial crisis we all went through a few years ago, there were many, many factors involved, that breaking up the banks, these big banks, would be a dangerous and unworkable experiment, that basically big business needs big banks, and if we want to be global, we have to have banks that are global as well. I want to go to the team that's arguing against the motion to come back to this term, too big to fail. I just want clarity from the side arguing against the motion. Do you believe that there are banks that are too big to fail, whose failure would indeed be catastrophic. So let me just be very clear from the outset. No bank should be too big to fail. No company should be too big to fail. Companies, whether they be banks or other financial institutions, need to suffer the risks of their own risky behavior. It's as simple as that. You're okay, here. So I think we're not debating, you know, and to characterize my position or the industry position as being supportive of moral hazard risk is just misleading. So let's just, let's just but make Paul, that to, to my question, clear. does that mean that you do feel that there's a scale of a bank where its failure would indeed be catastrophic? With Dodd-Frank and the law as it is today, which prohibits bailouts through the new bankruptcy process that allows banks to be resolved uh, without taxpayer right, support, no I, bank is too big to fail. I, I don't mean to harangue you on this question. I, I, I think maybe I'm not being quite clear. I'm actually asking for a hypothetical. If J.P. Morgan went down, would that be catastrophic for the economy? Uh, J.P. Morgan can be successfully resolved under the current law and would not need to be bailed out. Okay, let's go to the other side. Well, I, can um, I just say one thing, if I may? Yeah. Paul, you know I love you. You're a good man. Uh oh. 
Here it but comes. To, to make the claim, and I quote, the big banks were stabilizing influences during a crisis. They were the spreaders of the crisis. They were not a Richard, stabilizing with all due respect, I have and, to and disagree. And I know because they came to us to ask for protection. Goldman were, Sachs begged to become a gold as, bank as holding know, company. Richard, there were many banks that did Paul not Sussman. need TARP funds. There were many banks that acquired failing institutions at the request of the government to stabilize the market. And frankly, no good deeds goes, goes unpunished. You know, and, and if we can get back to the point earlier, are you suggesting that we now have only domestic banks? Is that your position, Simon? Paul, on the crisis that happened, no, one, is, word, is that one, your word, position? one word, Paul, one word for you, Citigroup. I'm Citigroup not... was at the center of the financial crisis. Too big to fail became a, a salient problem in the fall of 2008 because the banks said, they argued with, with some justification, we are, we've become so big you cannot let us fail. That's when too big to fail really became the problem that we're now trying to confront. So what happened in the last crisis is interesting, no doubt, but it's what happens going forward and how do we deal with the too big to fail institutions that we've well, let me, created. Let, me, That's let, the real let me put the question back to you that I put to the other side, which is if J.P. Morgan went down, would it bring the whole economy down with it? Absolutely. It would jeopardize our Richard security Fisher. and financial security as well as our economy. And let me just explain how it works. I mentioned the so-called SIFIs, systemically important financial institutions. There's a declaration of who is a SIFI and who is not. That is made by a body chaired by the Secretary of the Treasury. That body is inherently political. It is chaired by the Secretary of the Treasury. Republican or Democrat, they report to the President of the United States. If a bank that has $4 trillion in assets, if that bank were to be on the verge of some type of failure, do you actually think the Secretary of the Treasury and the body that he chairs, which includes the Federal Reserve Chairman, would let that bank go under, that any president okay, would you, allow that to happen? You've stated a great question, Enormous and I want to stop you there because I want to let the side answer that question specifically. Do you think that the, the, that the Fed would let the bank go down? Doug, yes you want yes to or no? We are a couple years away from having the things in place. I'm willing to wait the couple years while we get it done. But, yes, after Dodd-Frank is implemented in that manner, yes, I do believe it will have become possible. Why are we a couple of years okay, away, Doug? Wait, wait. I don't actually know what Simon's proposal is, and I'm not crystal clear on what Richard's proposal is. Do you want to break up the banks based on size characteristics, or do you want to go back to a kind of Glass-Steagall or do you insist on both? What is it you're actually proposing? In other words, do you just want to shrink all of these banks' balance sheets, or do you want to cut up their functions and, and, and separate the, the different kinds I of things they do sure into different institutions? What, what, what I have proposed, Richard what the Fisher. Dallas Fed has proposed, what Simon and I are suggesting, is that your exposure as taxpayers should be limited to the commercial banking operation of a complex bank holding company, and that all other aspects of that business are subject to the same risk of anybody that conducts that kind of business, whatever that business may be. And, you know, it doesn't take a meat axe, which is the term you used. The markets will downsize and restructure and reward those who are efficient rather than their having been protected by government guarantees. Okay. Uh, Paul Salzman. With all due respect, and I, I think I've heard a concession. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to... It's not a concession. You, you say, in other words, you agree you, with me. or do you not want the government to break up the big banks? Uh, That's I, what we're here debating, my, Richard. No, Look, listen, you, all we you want is to break up the big banks. Answer the question. Yeah, I want the government you know, to set the rules, and I want the market to enforce the breakup. And I agree with that. Yes. Look, okay. We won the debate. Absolutely. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the debate's over. Simon Johnson, you have the floor. <laughs> Look... 
I want to go back to a very important thing yes, that Simon Doug said, which was uh, that we're a couple of years away from, from something, something magical happening. Why, why, why are we a couple of years away? Well, Dodd-Frank passed in, in, in 2010. Three years later, how much of it has been implemented? Relatively little. Why? Because there's been a huge pushback from the industry. Now, I'm merely pointing out that this is an enormously powerful lobby, particularly around these very large banks, that has resisted... Dodd-Frank has resisted the living wills. It's resisted implementing a lot of other measures that would curtail the range of activities and the power of these very large banks. Simon, now it's my turn. I love you, okay? Um, no, it was Richard who loves you, Paul, okay. not me. I love you both. Oh, excuse me. Okay, Simon. But, but why do you insist on continuing to mischaracterize the industry position? I represent the clearinghouse. We have been nothing but constructive in the Dodd-Frank debate. We have supported living wills. We have supported prescriptive liquidity rules. We have spent millions of dollars through simulations and otherwise to try and create a framework in which too big to fail ends. We, we don't want subsidies. We don't want moral hazard risk. The disagreement is... Uh, the proposition on the table is you guys are in favor of the proposition to break up the big banks. And, Richard, your proposal is very reasonable. And tomorrow, if you want to have a debate about your proposal, let's do that. But that's not what's here tonight. What's here tonight is the proposal on the table for the government, the same government that can't seem to get its act together with respect to anything in Washington. You want them to set arbitrary size limits and break up the big banks. I think that is preposterous. I want to let you respond, and then I want to move on, uh, Richard, Richard Fisher. Well, the result is to break them up. The proposal that has been made achieves exactly that. So it does achieve the purpose of this debate. I think what we should all propose is that we go for any bank that is too big to fail and make it too small to save. Exactly what the small banks... You, you were saying that the small banks take the same kind of risk. You're right. You know what happens if they fail? They're shut on a Friday, and they reopen on a Monday under new ownership, and the management is gone, fired, gotten rid of. I just want the same thing for the large banks. I want to move on to audience questions in a minute. I have one more question to the side that's arguing for breaking up the big banks, an argument that your opponents made that global business demands global banks and that there are, there are businesses that rely very much on the banks now that are massive in scope, that they serve a function, that they, they became big in part because of uh, the needs of their clients. And I just want to ask uh, Simon Johnson to you to take on that point, and then we'll hear a response from your opponents. Well, I don't think anyone is, is proposing that you shrink all the banks down to some very tiny size. As I said, Goldman Sachs was a substantial international bank, one of the best international banks in the world in the mid-1990s. It was less than a quarter of the size that it became at the height of the financial crisis. So that's exactly what we mean by, when we say take away the subsidies, break up the banks, the market will sort out the ones who should fail, the ones who should survive. Without those subsidies, John they will be substantially smaller, and they'll be more competitive globally. You really want big, mega, crazy banks like what the Europeans have? I don't think so. Well, let's take it to the other side. Uh, Paul Saltzman? Just, I'd just like to read something from the Dallas Annual Report to clarify the point about size. Mega banks, those banks with assets in excess of $250 billion. Under your proposal, you'd break up U.S. Bank, you'd break up Capital One, you'd break up PNC. That's the problem with the proposal. No one has a monopoly on understanding what the right size is. So I think, which is it? Is it $250 billion? Is it $500 billion? Is it $1 trillion? 
That's the problem. The size of these banks are determined by the marketplace. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to some audience questions, sir, right down. Scott Shea, for the opponents, you've mentioned the consolidation of the rest of American industry, and you said the banks are consolidating in the same way. Couldn't it be the causation goes the other way, that the immense over-consolidation of the banking industry has caused the rest of the economy to follow in its wake and has raised the brittleness of the U.S. economy, decreased job formation, made middle market lending harder to achieve and harder to get because the big banks are indeed so big. Let's, let's uh, let the side arguing against the motion to break up the banks answer that. Yeah, banks mirror Paul society. Saltzman. Society don't mirror banks. Banks serve customer needs. IBM doesn't have um, businesses in 170 countries because J.P. Morgan exists. So I would say it's exactly the other way. Business is becoming global. Uh, uh, small businesses are becoming global, and banks service their needs. The other concept I'd like to get on the table is economies of size, scope, and scale. If you pay a million dollars for a computer and you have one customer, you have to charge that person a million dollars. If you have a million customers, you get to charge that person a dollar. It's pretty simple. Over the past five years, you have enormous technology expenses that need to get spread out over a large customer base. That is in large part why banks have become, uh, are, are getting larger and larger, because of those global and technology needs. Would this side like to respond? Yes, uh, Simon Johnson. When, when I talk to the, the CFOs of large international corporations, the people who run the financial side of those businesses, non-financial corporations, I ask them, do you need, do you want to have one big global bank handling all your financial operations everywhere in, in the world? It's, it's a fair question. And they say, no, we, we don't. What we want is, is different providers in different places. But the idea we would single source all of our credit, all of our financial transactions, that's actually a bad idea. So the idea that the big or international business somehow needs colossal, at this scale, international banks is a complete fallacy. Great jacket. And remember to stand up and tell us your name, please. Okay, um, my name is Jessica Bloomgarden, and my question is for the against side. Um, you guys have been very focused on making the debate around the size of banks and asset size, and I thought Richard's proposal around the division of function and sort of a glass seagull type proposal was really interesting, and I feel like you haven't addressed that, so I'd like to hear your so, opinion on that. Be happy to give you some thoughts, and I will in, in one second. The only reason we've been so focused on the other point is... That is the actual point of the debate, and it's kind, of a, it's kind of a sleight of hand to say we think that once you do this thing, it will change the whole economics so much that we know that it will achieve the same effect. I understand there's an argument for it that's far from proof. I want to remind you that we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, break up the big banks, sir. Hi, I'm Karthik Reddy, a student at Blair. And this question so, is for... So what, what, you're a student at Blair. Tell us about Blair for just a second. Well, Blair... There's a whole a, group of you here? Yeah, there's a small group of us here right in the middle. Are you the debating and, team? Uh, yeah, well, two of us are captains of the debating team. And oh. it's a... Yeah. 
<laughs> Congratulations. Thanks Thank for coming. So can, can we draft him for, at this point? <laughs> this question is for the four side. And in the scenario that you've proposed of the splitting of the big banks, how do you think the market will react to the splitting of these economic giants? I think the market would greet it with great applause, and I'll tell you why. Because the market would then gravitate to those who are the most efficient deliverer of services and all the services these gentlemen speak of, rather than just assuming that they can conduct business with them because they're totally safe at all times. Only the most efficient would survive. And by the way, it may be that XYZ Bank competes better than anybody else and has that business. That's fine with me. But I do not want to risk another penny of taxpayer money to bail them out when they make a big mistake. And it will happen in bigger size, and it may well happen before the waiting period that this gentleman mentioned. Doug Elliott. Yeah. Just want to say we agree with you on the objective. We don't agree with you that what you're proposing will achieve that objective. Another question? Um, I have a question for Richard and Simon. So you're saying that these banks are all global in nature, and you're proposing to break up the U.S. banks. But how would you handle international banks like Barclays, who have both commercial, retail, and investment banking divisions? How would they operate in America? Uh, One of the arguments you always hear is, we have to be big because the others are big, and if not, they will dominate the world. That was the argument made that the Japanese banks were going to dominate the world, Nomura, et cetera. Or the French banks would dominate the world. It hasn't happened. It doesn't happen because they grow to such a size and scale that they're unmanageable. I I don't fear international competition. I want to just be the best at what we do. I want to make sure that our taxpayers are protected so that we don't get driven into the tank like we were before. And I do believe that we can be internationally competitive just by being outstanding. Sir, right in the center there. I'm Mendel Lazarus. I'm a senior at Yeshiva University and accounting student. Just came to watch the debate. Um, I had a question for uh, Richard and Simon, and we've mentioned several times the complexities uh, of these large banks, specifically J.P. Morgan, $4 trillion in assets, $80 trillion in these incredibly risky derivative swaps. In a sense, yeah, you're right, these are incredibly risky things that are so colossal. You're suggesting breaking all of this up? Who exactly do you think it is that's going to pick up the pieces and make this all function in a smoother way? Richard Fisher. A more efficient operator that doesn't need to be subsidized to operate will pick up that business. Let me give you an example. There are huge hedge funds that manage derivatives. With each increase in the risk position they take, they have to post greater margin. That does not occur at the XYZ banking institution you mentioned before. Why should they be different than the, why should they have different rules apply to them that are applied to everybody else in the industry? When you place your own capital at risk, You should be subject to the same rules as anybody else who takes an at-risk position. That's all we're advocating. And I'm sure, and I know, there are others that would take up those positions that were sound and replace the positions that that institution will have. But that's because they're better and more efficient operators, and they don't operate with a subsidy. All right, let me bring in Paul Saltzman. Yeah, no, uh, look, it's uh, been waiting for the moment to address this fictitious subsidy question. There's no subsidy. Okay. Oh. There's no there's no transference of I wealth. I used to love you. I don't love you. <laughs> Richard, there is no subsidy. There is no empirical evidence to suggest that any taxpayer dollars are currently being transferred for the benefit of big banks. You're throwing out the term subsidy and creating this argument as if it's the agricultural industry that gets taxpayer dollars. What you're talking about, just to put it in the context, is allegations or assertions that banks 
somehow large banks borrow at funds cheaper than would otherwise be the case because of market perceptions that they will be bailed out. Which seems like a quite reasonable and logical argument. It's just not true. Well, okay, It's just not true. Okay. (laughs) Secondly, evidence suggests that large institutions borrow with cheaper funds because they're larger. They issue more debt. They have liquidity premiums. Coca-Cola borrows more cheaply than RC Cola. Would you suggest breaking up Coca-Cola or calling that a subsidy? The fact of the matter is the deposit liability structure of banks is very complex, and it's impossible to assess how and when cost of funds differentials are attributable to the too-big-to-fail issue that you're raising. It's just just simply not true. You just summarized very nicely all the industry papers, the papers written by people who work for the big banks on this topic. If we look at the independent research, including at a workshop at NYU that you helped to organize last week, there were, there were two very good papers by independent academics and uh, uh, groups of academics at that workshop just last week that showed there are substantial subsidies of the too-big-to-fail kind that exactly we've been talking about. That was your own conference, Paul. Why are you ignoring that evidence? Why are you Paul's ignoring also. Randy Krosner's paper, former governor of the Federal Reserve Randy Bank? Krosner's why, paper. Why are you ignoring Randy Loretta Krosner's, Mester's paper? Randy Krosner's, why are you ignoring all the papers that are against you? That's what you do, Simon. Randy Krosner's, you simply you, you ignore everything that's against you and you embrace everything By the way, everybody got for the you. package of the paper. Papers, right? And, uh, I, um, sir, right down front. My name is Fred Deutsch. To the side opposed, if your position is that the scale and scope of J.P. Morgan allows it to be the most efficient compared to the smaller banks, why is it that J.P. Morgan is not the low-cost mortgage provider in New York and can't execute international trade as efficiently as the smaller banks with whom we do business? Doug Elliott. Sure. First of all, here you're talking about one specific example. Every, every bank's going to have strengths and weaknesses. I don't think that the big strength of the banks we're talking about is their retail business. Where I see the more compelling case is where you're talking about doing things that smaller banks just really can't do, period. Uh, international trade, I'm, I'm not sure I could answer that. I'm sure there are people who would argue they do a nice job. I don't know enough about it. So they're really good at managing big, complex derivative transactions in London. I think that was the answer. (laughs) And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is break up the big banks. On to round three, closing statements. Our motion is this, break up the big banks. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Paul Saltzman, president of the Clearinghouse Association. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Saltzman. I know you've heard a lot of facts and figures and contradictory assertions, but let me uh, ask you to just consider three simple practical facts. I ask you to remember that America needs global banks, and it reflects the global economy in which we live. Unlike any era before, we live in a global economy. It's clear that our economy requires these international banks to support customers. The only question is whether America will sit on the sidelines or be part of that. Today, just four of the world's largest 25 banks are American banks. To break them up and reduce that number to zero jeopardizes America's leadership in the world and America's global leadership. I ask that you keep in mind that we can't roll back the clock. I know it's natural after the kind of disaster that we faced and the turmoil that that we've all experienced to yearn for more simpler, less complex times. But the American economy that was once served exclusively by small banks just no longer exists. The good old days weren't that good. The SNL crisis, the Great Depression, 
all were caused by systemic risks associated with smaller banks. Rolling back the clock to restructure the banking system isn't realistic, and it simply wouldn't make us safer. In closing, I know it feels good, but I submit that breaking up the big banks would create a host of new problems and solve almost none. We can do better, and we should. Please vote no and oppose the proposition. Thank you. Thank you, Paul Saltzman. Our motion is break up the big banks. And here to speak in summary in support of this motion, Richard Fisher, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Fisher. Thank you. I would submit that America needs competition. I would submit that America needs a level playing field. I would submit that America never again wants to expose its taxpayers to bailing out institutions that made bad decisions because they were badly managed and they were encouraged basically to achieve a size and scale under the protection of the law. I therefore strongly endorse taking action that would cordon off the guarantees we provide to these mega financial institutions and just make them subject to the same competitive rules that affect all other businesses. I ask you to support our motion to break up the too-big-to-fail banks. Thank you. Thank you, Richard Fisher. And that is our motion, break up the big banks. And here to speak against the motion in his closing statement, Doug Elliott, a fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. Ladies and gentlemen, Doug Elliott. Thank you, John, and thank you, everyone, for the opportunity. This is an important question. The overall objectives you've described, Richard, and I think Simon, we would agree with. I'd focus on two points why I don't agree with your actual proposal. First is, I'm still a little unclear exactly what it is and how it relates to the actual uh, thing we were supposed to debate. And for me, that's an important point. But beyond that, uh, beyond that, I do believe from the years of experience I had working in the industry, that the customers really have seen major advantages. And I do want to say, Richard, early on, you were describing bankers who were deliberately creating excessively large firms for the sake of being excessively large, opaque firms for the sake of maximizing the subsidies. I worked in M&A, in finance, working with financial institutions. I never once in the 20 years ever talked to anybody who even in private conversations had any of those things as their objectives. Now, I can understand if you want to make the argument that the incentive structure pushes things that way, but I would strongly urge backing away from language that both of you at times have used that argues that the bankers are deliberately trying to create their firms in such a way that they get these subsidies. Uh, I think I'll leave it there. I'd urge you to vote against the motion. Thank you very much, Doug Elliott. And that is our motion, break up the big banks. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion to break up the big banks, Simon Johnson, former chief economist at the IMF, professor at MIT's Sloan School of Management. Ladies and gentlemen, Simon Johnson. In uh, 1902... The administration of Teddy Roosevelt brought an antitrust action against Northern Securities, a very low, large railroad company. It was one of the first actions of its kind. It was extremely controversial. A lot of people in the mainstream didn't know what Roosevelt was doing. There were plenty of arguments made that 
these monopolies were modern, they were efficient, they would benefit the American economy. J.P. Morgan, the original J.P. Morgan, the man, came to the White House in February 1902, and he said to Roosevelt and to his attorney general, if we've done anything wrong, send your man to see my man, and we'll fix it up. And Roosevelt and his attorney general, thank goodness, said no. We don't want to fix it up. We want to stop it. This, in Roosevelt's mind, was an excessive concentration of power. They took that case all the way to the Supreme Court. They won it four to three. And out of that came a lot more precedents, antitrust cases, more legislation. And I would submit the really important change was a shift in the consensus In 1911, when the government moved to break up Standard Oil, there were very few defenders of huge monopolies. People understood concentrated power can be very damaging in this democracy. Vote for the democracy. Vote to break up the big banks. Thank you. Thank you, Simon Johnson. And that concludes our closing statements. Um, I also want to say this uh, about this debate. It it was really terrific. Uh, These uh, debaters obviously feel passionate about this. They have a shared common ground, but they had very, very honest disagreements that were honestly argued. And I want to congratulate them for the way they did this tonight. All right, the results are in now. Our motion is this, break up the big banks. We have had you vote twice, both before the debate and once again after the debate. Remember, the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Here was the result of the preliminary vote on the motion, break up the big banks, before the debate. 37% of you agreed with this motion. 19% were against. 44% were undecided. So those are the first results. Remember, the team that moves the numbers the most from first vote to second has declared our winner. Here is then the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 49%. From 37% to 49%, that is an increase of 12 percentage points. That is the number to beat. The team against the motion, and their first vote was 19%. Their second vote, 39%. That's 20 percentage points above. They did it. The team arguing against the motion has won this debate. Break up the big banks. Congratulations to them, and thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.